Good morning. It's a pleasure having you all here at Hudson Institute. Uh, my name is Hussain Haqqani, and I am the director for South and Central Asia here at Hudson. Uh, it's my pleasure today to uh, welcome Dr. Rahman Subhan, a prominent economist and a public intellectual whom most of us know uh, as someone who played an active role in the independent struggle of Bangladesh. Uh, he's currently the chairman of the Center for Policy Dialogue in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Uh, he's a former professor of economics at Dhaka University. Uh, he has authored a number of books uh, which go back all the way. The list is long. Uh, it's from the days when Bangladesh was still East Pakistan. One of his early books that I recall is uh, about basic democracies and rural development in East Pakistan. Uh, and then, of course, um, towards a theory of governance and development, uh, learning from East Asia and then challenges and changes in Bangladesh's development. But Rahman Subhan's real uh, sort of uh, contribution other than his work as an economist was as an advocate for Bangladesh, uh, uh, Bangladeshi independence. Now, I come from Pakistan, and uh, I actually have a uh, really uh, sort of special sense of... Uh, of a connection with those in Bangladesh who suffered at the hands of Pakistan's military, not just physically, but intellectually. Because I was just talking to Dr. Subhan before we came in here, and I wanted to clarify something based on what he had written in his book. And I said, you were not an advocate of separation of East Pakistan from Pakistan. You were actually somebody who was very early in the 1960s pointing out that there are disparities that are growing and that these disparities might lead people to think about getting out of the Pakistani Federation. And the reason why I empathize with his position is because I find myself in a similar position in Pakistan today uh, when I raise questions about the Pakistani state and its policies and I say that they will have certain consequences. Instead of appreciating them as analysis, people turn around and say, oh, you actually want that to happen. And, and, and when that does happen, God forbid, then I'm going to be held responsible for having made them happen instead of being seen as somebody who predicted that happened. So that's something that happened to Rahman Subhan. Wonderful book that he has written titled Untranquil uh, Recollections, which is the story of his life. Uh, he was educated at elite schools such as St. Paul's School, Darjeeling, the HSN College, Lahore, and Cambridge University. And he begins his book by telling the story of how he is actually totally not the kind of person who had a, a bringing to be a, a revolutionary freedom fighter. And uh, 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 Dr. Subhan, we should start from that. Uh, I will actually quote from your book that, you know, these, you, you say these are the memoirs of a child born at an elite nursing home in Calcutta with a British doctor in attendance to a mother from the Dhaka Nawab family and a father who was a member of the Imperial Police Service of India. Uh, the central theme of my story is intended to explain why 
how and under what circumstances the great great grandson of nawab ahsanullah obviously a very uh, elite establishment figure the son of a police officer who was once a contemporary of field marshal ayub khan at sandhurst would on 27th of march 1971 have his home in dhaka invaded by an officer and his troops from the pakistan army with orders to take him into custody on charges of high treason to the state of pakistan while welcoming you here to the hudson institute at this discussion let me begin our conversation with the question how did that come to be well thank you hussain uh, and uh, thank you for all of us all of you joining this uh, there are a number of people to begin with who i would like to uh recognize immediately uh before i get into responding sure. to said because they are all imprinted in my memory and uh, are perhaps all, also recognized in my volume though don't look for your name in the index because uh sheikh mujibur rahman only gets one reference in the index which is tantamount to high treason in pakistan whereas he appears through most of the book so the one misfortune in the book was a sort of defective uh, uh, person preparing the index uh, but beyond that i am very pleased to see that scott butcher is here one of the authors of the famous blood telegram uh, which made such a difference to in fact perceptions in the united states at that time uh, i see uh, people who actually participated with us over here in the struggle in dhaka uh june dine and kaisar zaman please be recognized uh then again i see david nalin uh who was in dhaka and his reports from the cholera research lab were again very important i see mohsin siddiqui uh, please uh, be recognized who was a young student at that time and uh, who worked with me as secretary chauffeur and many other things at that time and arnold zeitlin who was of course reporting these events and bringing this before that so these were all unusual colleagues to in fact recognize given as you say the antecedents from which i arrived over here and uh, the journey itself was a very improbable one as i think i pointed out and it in a way paralleled the trajectory of the pakistan state and uh, our family was involved uh, from my mother's side in the creation of pakistan in fact uh, the uh, son of nawab asanullah nawab salimullah was one of the founding fathers of the uh, muslim league which was founded in his ancestral home in asan manzil in uh, 1905 and uh, this was the family tradition of being in muslim league politics but i moved in a very different direction and i suppose why i never called this uh, actual memoir Uh, or even a history of the liberation movement to bangladesh because it's more personal narrative about how i came from such a background and once you are politically conscious and engaged uh, in Bang- in uh, in uh, what was then east pakistan 
the conversations and the discussions were all mainly centered around the deprivation of democracy <coughs> and from that the deprivation of economic resources which then escalated uh, through a process of conscious neglect which was built into the dynamics of the Pakistan state into a process where a struggle for democracy and regional autonomy uh, transformed itself into a liberation struggle and in fact I, I'm not going to give you a narrative of the uh, book but that's really what the story is all about. Well, your story, of course, has great details about your childhood in Calcutta, some people would say, and too detailed, but, you know, it's details about, about your childhood in Calcutta, schooling in Darjeeling, and then later in Lahore and Karachi, and finally at Cambridge University. In fact, your father was generous to, uh, enough to let you have several months in England before you made up your mind of, 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 of attending Cambridge. Uh, how did any of that, in fact, how does any of that actually prepare a man to become a freedom fighter several years on? <clears throat> well, quite frankly, all the way up to Cambridge, uh, I was being, you may say, sort of disprepared for getting into anything which would in fact resemble politics. In Darjeeling, in my school, people were largely educated to become boxwalas or which was the term then for people who would join executive in executive positions in British mercantile houses in Bengal. Uh, at Aitchison College, of course, this was the heart of feudalism. It was founded, uh, as author Gauba said, to transform barbarian princelings into English gentlemen. And, of course, uh, uh, the English gentleman part was a sort of more mixed outcome. Uh, but uh, the end result was you had an elite who expected to rule Pakistan. Uh, and so there too, in fact, uh, there was no preparation, but a first dawning of the fact that there were perhaps two nations housed in the body politic of Pakistan. And of course, Cambridge was the formative phase, uh, which took me down that road, because once you start developing a political consciousness, which is forging your political identity, uh, you are going to get to a point where you then recognize what are the central elements in the political process uh, to which you are, in fact, aspiring to join. And we found that in Pakistan, as which I had planned to make my home, uh, you were faced with the central political problem of denial and deprivation of the majority segment of the population. And that was really what shaped my initial thinking in Cambridge and uh, my subsequent career. I would make one recognition on this, that actually the first person who consciously educated me in Cambridge of all places on the importance of a national identity and a distinct uh, need for autonomy was Mia Iftikharuddin. He was known as the uh, Red Landlord and the founder of Pakistan Times, and a major, uh, one of those rare leftists in West Pakistan politics whose son was a great friend of mine. And he, when he was chatting with me and sounding me out, 
pointed out this particular feature of Pakistan and said this is what people like you should go and fight for. Very interesting. I mean, uh, Mia Iftakharuddin, of course, uh, had left-wing political sympathies uh, all through his life, uh, even though he came from a feudal family of Punjab. And he always actually had a perspective very different from that of the Punjab elite uh, uh, throughout, throughout Pakistani politics. But would you say that your political consciousness that emerged in Cambridge uh, was like the nationalist consciousness of others uh, with a very left-wing point of view, uh, instead of sort of looking at the world from the lens of a Western-educated elite, now you started looking at it as, a, uh, um, as somebody who actually understood uh, who you were in a nationalist sense. Well, Cambridge, of course, in those days housed many views, and I should imagine that uh, left-wing consciousness in Cambridge was still something of a minority faction. But the left, I always believe, until more contemporary times, has been a lot more articulate than the right in the period of my formative phase in, in years after that. And in that particular time, I interacted with the Labour Club, I interacted with the Socialist Club, I had a group of friends who were on the left, I think the principal of those was Amartya Sen, who was, uh, came straight from the uh, hive of left-wing activism, Presidency College in Calcutta. And uh, this was a formative phase where you were partly embracing the nationalist struggle which was still incomplete in Africa, in Southeast Asia. We strongly believed in the Algerian liberation struggle. The victory in Dien Bien Phu was celebrated by a dinner amongst all of us. Uh, and in those days, our view basically was that uh, national consciousness needed to be then underwritten by a sort of left perspective on the world. And that certainly was shaped or began to be shaped in Cambridge. But then you returned from Cambridge to Pakistan, uh, or more precisely, East Pakistan. Um, and then you start uh, analyzing, writing as an economist, and pointing out the disparity between East and West Pakistan. Your initial writings were not about the national uh, idea of, of, of Bengali nationalism, but about just uh, uh, inequality within and injustice within uh, within the Pakistani state, and also the fact that the lack of democracy and the uh, dominance of a predominantly Punjabi military somehow worked to the disadvantage of the Bengalis, who ended up being... So how did that then play out? Like, you know, you must have had, coming from an elite family, you probably were part of the drawing room circuit in Karachi at that time, where everybody was part of that oppressive West Pakistani elite, and they raised, you know, they, they couldn't have been very happy with what you were writing. And, uh, uh, and I'm sure that Field Marshal Ayub Khan's officials got in touch with you and spoke to you about it. So what, what was that like? What was those discussions like? Well, <clears throat> having come back to Pakistan and making my home in Dhaka and then becoming a teacher at Dhaka University, these were very uh, consciousness-forming periods in one's life. And, and when you went into the common room in Dhaka University, about the only topic of conversation was the uh, uh, 
domination, exploitation of East Pakistan from the West. And of course, within uh, a year and a half of my return, martial law was declared, and then the whole conversation moved to the denial of democracy. So these were shaping my views, but I was visiting West Pakistan on conferences. I, my friends from HSN College were taking me around, and obviously you found they inhabited a different universe from the way they actually looked on the world. And uh, in those days, Ayub Khan believed that uh, Bengalis were of a somewhat sort of uh, inheritedly servile nature. And the non-martial people. The non-martial people who were used to being dominated and suffered from inferiority complex. And so what the intellectuals really needed was to be educated on the importance of the Pakistan vision and the need for participating in integrating the Pakistan state. So I point out in my book that I was invited to such a conference on, uh, which was termed on how to build Pakistan into a well-knit nation. It was organized by the ideological think tank of the Ayub regime, the Bureau of National Reconstruction. And this was way back in, I think, October of 1961. I was then all of 26 years old. And uh, the idea was that once I was exposed to uh, sound thinking from uh, the West Pakistani intellectuals, all would be uh, reconciled in my mind. But the paper I presented was, of course, the one which, in a way, really sort of set me off on this path, in which I pointed out that uh, the real problem in Pakistan was the deprivation of East Pakistan, and that the only way you could effectively address this was by, in fact, uh, vesting complete autonomy on the uh, province so that they could, in fact, forge their own policies and control their own resources. And as a postscript, uh, at the end, I added on that, uh, and if you do not address these problems at this stage, uh, then uh, this is, in fact, going to have the opposite effect of integrating Pakistan. It could lead to the disintegration of Pakistan. So that uh, aside, then in Voked from the chairman of the meeting, who is a judge of the West Pakistan High Court, a observation to a friend that who is this young man and does he not know that the country is under martial law? Uh, so that was the way the uh, narrative progressed over there, that <coughs> consciously there was a tendency on the part of the elite to uh, not recognize that there was a problem, to see this as sort of wrong-headedness on the part of the Bengalis. And right down to the final meetings of the fourth five-year plan panel of economists, I recognize one of the architects and partners in that venture over here, Professor Nurul Islam, in addressing the issues of deprivation. They were still uh, not fully recognizing, even at that late stage of 1970, as to the nature of the crisis and the way in which, in fact, it was taking the country. So somehow there was a sort of institutionalized myopia or something built into the DNA of the ruling elite of Pakistan, which blinded them to the facts on the ground.
I mean, after all, the intelligence agencies of Pakistan were still informing Yahya Khan right up to election day that Sheikh Mujib would not be able to get a significant majority in the elections. Now, they were probably the only people, at least uh, in Pakistan, who thought that was a possibility. Uh, in Bangladesh, everyone knew it was going to be a landslide, but uh, there it was. Well, I, I can assure you that several years later, nothing has changed on that particular score as far as as far as the myopia and the uh, and the inability to predict events of Pakistan's intelligence services is concerned. Uh, but 1970, uh, when 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 the Awami League was going into election, then it was very clear that the Awami League represented East Pakistan in that election. Really, to the to the Bengalis, it represented East Bengalis. Um, and then there were these conservative religious right parties and the Muslim League or whatever had uh, had been left of it that was representing uh, the uh, sort of old centrist Pakistani state. Did you really think that that election will actually end up formalizing the breakup of Pakistan or did you still expect that there will be a new constitutional arrangement that would get the autonomy that you were talking about and still keep some semblance of a relationship between East and West Pakistan? Well, quite frankly, Bongo uh, Bandhu Sheikh Mujibur Rahman always uh, saw this as a process in which if in fact he generated enough of a popular mobilization through the election process and he could, in fact, bring to the attention of the rulers, which was the army, that the entire people of Bangladesh are behind this demand. They would have the minimum wisdom, even at this late stage, to recognize that this is really the end of the road. Uh, if you don't accept the framing of a constitution based on six points, it's going to, in fact, end up in a liberation struggle. And this was a message I actually conveyed uh, when I was sent on a mission just after the elections by Sheikh Mujibur Rahman and Mr. Tajuddin Ahmed to meet the uh, leaders of the People's Party to find out exactly in West Pakistan, in West Pakistan uh, what they were up to. And I remember my meeting, I have discussed this in the book, with uh, Rafi Raza, who was uh, one of the founders of the People's Party with uh, Mr. Bhutto, and was actually their chief legal advisor who had been entrusted to formulate the constitution. When I met him, I found that no progress had been made in formulating a draft from the People's Party, so they were not really interested in a negotiation process. And so I told Rafi that, look here, you people have to recognize, and please convey this, and take me to meet Mr. Bhutto, that uh, the six-point demand is now after the elections where they had won uh, every one but two seats and had a majority in the assembly, was now a minimalist demand. If this is not recognized, then the next phase is a liberation struggle. So Rafi Raza and I think also Kamal Asfar 
uh, went to Mr. Bhutto and said, I think you should meet Rahman Subhan. Uh, this is the message he is conveying. And Mr. Bhutto airily dismissed this and said, oh, Rahman Subhan is a well-known uh, extremist in hothead and his views should not be taken seriously. This can, in fact, lead to uh, a possible accommodation. He was remembering a rather heated conversation Kamal Hussain and I had had with him. Kamal Hussain, who became the law minister. The law minister, and who was Rahman's constitutional, constitutional advisor. advisor. We had met him when he came to Dhaka in 1970 and had a fierce argument with him in the Intercontinental Hotel. Uh, more or less on these lines. So he put me in that category and uh, eventually, of course, his advice to Yahya on the eve of the liberation war was, well, these Bengalis, uh, this is Awami League is a middle class party. Uh, you just kill a few people and you arrest the leaders and all will be well. Uh, Bhashani is the real sort of uh, liberation warrior, and he's not in a position of influence. So this is the way in which if you take the state, uh, you will then settle this problem and the Bengalis will come to heal. Now, you were not in Dhaka uh, uh, on the eve of the actual military operation, or you were? No, I was very much in Dhaka. Yeah. And, uh, Let's hear that story. Because well, I, I was in Dhaka, of course, uh, when the uh, first shots were fired, the army had gone to arrest Sheikh Mujib, which was done in the middle of the night. They then launched attacks on the uh, East Pakistan rifles because they thought that the Bengalis there would, in fact, be a main source of resistance, and the police lines. Uh, and uh, that was really, and then Dhaka University. There was no way they were not going to come after you, the hot... No, actually, quite frankly, and I suppose you would put this as a form of extreme naivety, I still thought I was an academic economist and that, uh, well, all right, what would they do? I mean, they will perhaps uh, throw me out of the Dhaka University and uh, we were foolish enough to sit there. So Nudel Salam, my partner in uh, high treason and myself and others, we were all uh, sitting in our homes. Uh, I think when the curfew was lifted on the 27th of March, uh, a friend of mine came to me, uh, Muhyiddin Hassan, and said, you must be a complete lunatic to be at home because they are going around picking up people and killing them. So what the hell do you think you are doing there? So he took me out and I was uh, spent the night in uh, uh, the home of a member of the David Nalin's group. Uh, his name was John Grody at the Cholera Research Laboratory. And on the same night uh, that I had left, uh, the army came to my house and the same uh, <clears throat> captain who was part of the group who had arrested Sheikh Mujibur Rahman came to pick me up and uh, arrest me. So that was when I decided that actually I was no longer, you may say, a recalcitrant intellectual, but I was in fact assigned uh, to combat in a liberation war. And uh, that had been the process of identification, which I was at that time still not sure that I was going to go down that road. 
And your family, of course, must have passed the message wherever you were to you that they did come for you. Oh, yes. And, and, and were there any gory details? Well, there were some. Uh, <laughs> in fact, it was a very tense situation because when they came there, uh, my three sons were there. They were uh, young and my wife, Salma, was there. Uh, and they were going to take them into the cantonment and hold them hostage. And here, of course, I'm grateful to uh, our neighbors, uh, the uh, Isfahanis, who... Uh, who happen to be my in-laws, by the way. Your in-laws. And uh, they, in fact, had close connections with General Yahoo Khan. And they then intervened and said that I will stay guaranteed that they do not go any place. And then, of course, uh, I think your wife, Faranaz's mother, was instrumental in getting them out of Dhaka. Uh, so I owe debts all round. But essentially, once I got this information, then I moved out. We then took refuge, moved across the border. And then the rest of the narrative begins, where I had my encounter with Mr. Tajuddin Ahmed in Delhi, and I was sent out by him as his first envoy to join the campaign for uh, uh, bringing recognition to Bangladesh. And of course, our second mission was to see that uh, American and global aid to Pakistan would be stopped because this was going to be used as an instrument for, in fact, actually killing Bangladeshis. Because by then, a massive genocide had actually been launched by the army. Now, you had, uh, so, so, so there were these India days uh, and, and global travel days. Uh, your brother, uh, Farooq Subhan, who is here, was serving in uh, Paris at that time in the Pakistan embassy. And uh, this must have been, you know, there must have been a feeling of, so the Nawab of Dhaka's sort of, you know, the grandson and an and, and establishment figure who has seen himself only as an academic until the day uh, before the Pakistani military actually comes to arrest him is now kind of transformed into Agent 007, traveling between Delhi and, and, and the various capitals. And then this person with ori left-wing origins now has to deal with all these capitalist regimes uh, that he does not, or imperialist regimes, pro-imperialist regimes, trying to get support. And you did succeed because Bangladesh became a cause for the whole world. Uh, the entire Western world uh, stood up. Um, and yes, uh, uh, Scott Butcher and Archer Blood uh, uh, were people who were on the ground, but you know, um, uh, I, I always think there was something in fate that the two senior most people in the American consulate had names like Blood and Butcher. So you know, there was, <laughs> there was, there was something, something about that that's uh, that's 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 j j just you know ironic. But but you so t tell us about what you did and how you actually got the um, support that you did. Uh, because there are many other genocides and injustices in the world that do not generate the kind of support. And I was a child in West Pakistan at that time, so I had no clue. And it was just that I was staying in Lahore at the home of a relative over summer break in 1971, and somebody had brought to them a like a, a, a bound volume of a British newspaper. For sev of several months in 1971. And that was the first time I, as a 14-year-old, 
browse through this because I liked reading and that night there was nothing else to read. And that's when I realized that something was happening in East Pakistan that we didn't know about because the West Pakistani media only talked about occasional miscreants attacking the Pakistani military, uh, India and Indian agents causing trouble in East Pakistan, but the brave people of East Pakistan uh, in the form of the Jamaat-e-Islami and the, and, and the Muslim League uh, fighting for the ideology and integrity of Pakistan. Um, and that's all we were aware of. There was no, for, I mean, Time Magazine and Newsweek, which used to be two magazines that people could actually access for information. They were banned during that period. Uh, we couldn't listen to foreign broadcasts. The BBC was available only on shortwave and not everyone had a shortwave radio. And so it was not easy for us to know what was going on. In fact, the day the Pakistani military surrendered on 16th of December 1971. The main headline of our most important newspaper, Dawn, was victory on all fronts. Uh, <clears throat> so, 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 so tell us how you basically went and generated that international support that enabled the Bangladesh cause to be far more successful than many other such liberation movements in recent years. Well... <clears throat> Uh, I remember the joke then was in uh, amongst us that uh, all the problems in 71 were being caused in for Pakistan by two ladies. One was uh, Mrs. Gandhi and the other was Miss Creant. Uh, <laughs> miscreant being the favorite word of the Pakistani military right. to describe so anyone, no doubt, in Pakistan was wondering who the hell is this Miss uh, Mrs. Gandhi and Miscreants. Okay, but anyway, this was a part of the problem because in Pakistan itself, uh, you had this fantasy world which was being created, and I suppose up to a point, the media has continued to play the role periodically of creating an alternate reality uh, uh, wherever things are going wrong with the state. But in, as far as my story was concerned, Tajuddin um, uh, and I, when we were in fact together, had heard over the... Let's just tell the audience, especially those who are not very... I mean, there are a lot of people here who know a lot about Bangladesh history, but there might be some who don't. So just tell us, like, in a a couple of sentences about Mr. Tajuddin. He was well, Mr. Tajuddin was the Secretary General of the, uh, of the Awami League, and he was, for all practical purposes, the alter ego of Sheikh Mujibur Rahman. He had a brilliant political mind, great organizing skills. And uh, he uh, was, in fact, one of the first people to reach Delhi. I actually reached Delhi before him. And uh, when we met... What route did you use? Did you I, came through, uh, I came through Agartala. And then I was... Uh, when I came which out... Which is the Indian state of Tripura. Which is the Indian state of Tripura. And how is it that the Pakistani military couldn't or didn't stop people crossing over? Well, what was very interesting was that in the first few days of the uh, liberation war, in fact, uh, what had changed the whole narrative was that there was a mass uprising and that not only did the uh, uh, armed forces, meaning to say the Bengalis in the army, the Bengalis in the uh, border security force, the police, went into a state of revolt. 
But much more significant even than that, because I came across this when I was going across the countryside, is that ordinary people in every corner, whilst well, the moment they heard that a massacre was going on in Dhaka, actually took up arms. When I was going through a particular village, uh, I came across peasants standing with sharpened bamboo sticks. And so when we asked what were these people doing, they said they were told that Pakistani troopers may land here and we are going to catch them at the end of our bamboo uh, staves. So they had no military tradition, no arm, but the consciousness which had been uh, raised within them through Sheikh Mujibur Rahman's election campaign and political mobilization had made this into a mass struggle. And it was that mass struggle which, in fact, actually uh, was instrumental then in uh, the genocide which took place. Because when the army cracked down, unlike the advice of Mr. Bhutto, they found they were not just dealing with a few sort of intellectuals in Dhaka University and... Uh, who they did arrest. Who they did arrest, and they killed large numbers of people in the university. But actually, they were faced with a mass uprising in which a non-martial race was willing to actually fight and shed their blood. So this was a transformative period. Shouldn't they have actually banished the words martial race the day after they realized that the people of Bangladesh with bamboo sticks proved to be a far more uh, sort of significant adversary? Well, hopefully they have done that by now. Uh, but uh, they tend to... You, haven't, you a, obviously haven't been to Pakistan. But the learning process, in, I suppose, in the armed forces tends to be somewhat slow, uh, from my experience. So you arrived in India? Let's I arrived there, then, of course, as I said, various events were narrated as to how I got there. And the mission which Tajuddin uh, had given me was because he'd heard over the radio that Mr. M. M. Ahmad, the economic czar of the Pakistan government, had been sent by Yahya or was being sent by Yahya to go to the United States to seek assistance. And I, I remember Tajuddin being incandescent with rage, saying that, my goodness, he's actually going to get money to massacre us, so you better go and initiate a campaign. Uh, to do something about this. Now, here was I, uh, in those days, I was associate professor of economics uh, in Dhaka University. I was being entrusted with initiating a global campaign. And when you reflect on it, it seems almost a risable proposition that I could be entrusted with such a mission. But the moment I got out of the country, I, I went to Farooq, who was then Third secretary. Pa Paris was your first? Yeah, I went to Paris, but there it was more transit point uh, and uh, got some sense of the French scene from him. And then I went on to London, and there, of course, all the Bengalis had risen up as one and were engaged in trying to lobby public opinion. And so I began my attempt to reach out at that point to the British government and uh, to see whether we could educate them. But what was very interesting at that phase, and this is why the world is so different today, the British government was then under Tory regime. And uh, their worldview essentially was that uh, you cannot interfere in the affairs 
of an independent country. Now, and, a, and a fellow member of the Commonwealth. And a fellow member of the Commonwealth. So you can tell that to the uh, Libyans and the Syrians and the Iraqis today, uh, where, of course, uh, the uh, capacity to intervene is done almost at the drop of a hat. But the world in those days was quite different. And, of course, our misfortune was that we had uh, Tory regime in power in the U.S., and Mr. Nixon was the president of the United States. So, essentially, we found uh, initially sort of somewhat uncomfortable hearing in both places. So, we reached out to the opposition party. I met with uh, the uh, foreign policy leader of the Labour Party, Dennis Healy, who later I think became minister, the head of the Labour Party, and I met with journalists, and I met with other and that was far more successful because and then the Bengalis there had already initiated a mass campaign, so that both here and then when I went to the U.S., a mass campaign was initiated to go over the heads of the respective governments at that time. Now, the uh, mobilization in the United States was quite without parallel because there the Nixon administration uh, was not only uh, unwelcome to us, it was actually being supportive of Pakistan at that particular period. And, of course, the whole nature of the blood telegram to draw attention that genocide was being committed, uh, possibly with U.S. arms, was, in fact trying to sort of get through, and of course, in a way, it cost uh, Archer Blood, who was then the Consul General, his career at that time. And uh, I think he never really advanced very much after that, and he paid a price. But others, like uh, Scott Butcher and others, who felt very strongly and were communicating with uh, the State Department, were then being uh, uh, chastised by the ambassador in, uh, in Islamabad at that time for, in fact, taking up this position. So what we found when I got to the United States and began the campaign was that uh, the government was very reluctant to, in fact, actually interact with us. Uh, in the first phase, the only people we were really getting to meet <coughs> were <coughs> low-level people. I had a meeting with... Uh, uh, one of the uh, junior officers, I think, Quinton, who actually recorded my full encounter with him. And I have enclosed that because we got it from the archives of the State Department in my memoir. Uh, but uh, this was really the message. And so we realized that the real target had to be the American public. And here, of course, uh, again, it was the Congress which became our target. Uh, one of the alumni of that campaign, uh, Joan Dine, she is here. Her husband was Tom Dine. He was the principal aide of Frank Church. And Church... Senator Frank Church of, uh, of, I, I, of Idaho, uh, who was a ranking member of the Foreign Relations Committee. And amazingly, I mean, none of his constituents in Idaho knew anything about where East Bengal was or, or what was happening right. there. And he was just a man of principle who took the position that, you know, uh, the, the that even if it's about a distant place, U.S. arms should not be used for committing genocide. 
And it's an interesting aside that in my book, Magnificent Delusions, I use the archival material for a very important point. Why was Nixon doing what he was doing? And his argument was that Yahya Khan, the Pakistani military dictator at the time, was his friend. And he had helped him send Henry Kissinger to China. So this was his payback. And the people didn't matter. And Nixon very cynically at one point says, I know Yahya is committing suicide, but because he's my friend, I won't say anything to him, which makes me wonder about Richard Nixon, because what kind of friend would not stop a friend from committing suicide? So you really, so, so you overcame a lot of odds here. Well, you? the real odds were that the U.S. government itself had taken this position in the face of a very conspicuous genocide, which had been communicated to them by their own staff members. And so having targeted the... Congress and the public as our constituency rather than the U.S. government. We then launched uh, mobilization uh, and of course some of the alumni of that mobilization were there. Joan Dine was, uh, who is here, was part of the Bangladesh Information Center. Khaisar Zaman, who is here, was with her in that. Uh, and uh, I didn't realize we had so many Bangladeshi freedom fighters and supporters yes, indeed, in the audience uh, today. Were, but, you know. They were full-time workers for this campaign. And of course, the culmination of that campaign where not just uh, all Bangladeshis in the U.S. were mobilized. Professor Yunus was then a Ph.D. student. He came and participated in the campaign. Every Bangladeshi came to Washington to join that campaign at one phase or the other. And the objective at that point essentially was that you must uh, go to your congressman and ask them to vote for a bill which had been tabled by Frank Church and by a Republican Senator William Saxby. This was known as the Saxby Church Amendment, which actually was drafted by Joan Dine's husband, Tom Dine, who was his aide and certainly uh, has been recognized along with Joan by the Bangladesh government as one of the great contributors to our liberation struggle. Now, the Saxby Church Amendment was, in fact, shaped and drafted with a view to say that all aid to Pakistan from the United States must be cut off uh, until they stop their genocide and entered into a conversation with the leaders of the Awami League, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, to, in fact, uh, talk about the uh, political future of the Bengalis. And this was then the mission, which became a national mission. Uh, we met with the media. I was very active here. I think uh, Mohsin Siddiqui were in, uh, his colleagues and people from within the Bangladesh mission were instrumental in connecting me to the uh, you mean the yes. informal Bangladesh mission because it wasn't a legal... At that time, it was informal, uh, and they only uh, defected the, en masse from the Pakistan embassy around the beginning of August. And then that became the first uh, embassy of Bangladesh internationally. So basically, the campaign then was to reach the public through the media, to reach the public uh, through the uh, Congress, Okay. and to make them our allies. And this was perhaps one of the most successful campaigns ever launched because the Saxby Church Amendment was actually passed. 
in the yes, month of and July. violated by uh, by President Nixon at one point. Well, they were freely interpreting the stoppage evade um, okay. as uh, entitlement to go on sort of sending what they claimed were already contracted. Right, demands. right. Now, um, I mean, I would not be doing my duty as moderator if I didn't put in the perspective that is widely accepted in Pakistan, which is, yes, all of this and some mistakes on part of Pakistan's military and Pakistan's politicians, but basically this was all about India wanting to dismember Pakistan and that they had a plan to do that from the beginning and that they were in touch and that's why India was so hospitable to you and to Mr. Tajuddin and everybody else and this was... Uh, and, and your international campaign was also primarily, I mean, by your account, it was the Bangladeshis, the, the, the Bangladeshi diaspora, every Bengali who lived in the U.S. or in, uh, or in England just felt they were getting harrowing stories from their family members who, with, with whom they were in touch and they were acting. And maybe India did assist uh, as, a, uh, as, as, a, as a secondary supportive actor but the Pakistani narrative is, no, this was all one Indian plan and plot, and you guys were acting at their behest. What do you say to that? It's important to have that perspective and the answer. Well, that perspective, too, was a continuation of the alternate reality, which was basically one of the, uh, one of the strands which ran through the Pakistan state from its founding, that you created your own notion of reality, which did, uh, had no relation to the facts. Now, I have some personal experience on the validity of that hypothesis, which has been validated by other writings. I was perhaps with my colleague Anisa Rahman and uh, a couple of Bangladeshi political figures at that time, the first people to arrive in Delhi around the end of March. Ah. And uh, we were then taken to meet, uh, I, uh, meet uh, various people. Now, when I arrived... Who took you to meet these people? You see, when I arrived in Agartala at that particular time, I went to the deputy commissioner, who I found was a was young... The head of the district administration. Yes. As a residence, I found this young man sitting in his veranda in a red dressing gown, looking completely bewildered, saying there are th thousands of Bengalis coming across the border into Agartala. I've just come here. I don't know what the hell is happening. And they are, some are asking for food, some are asking for arms. What the hell am I supposed to do? This is not the duty of a deputy commissioner. And he said that, well, we hear that the chief minister of Agartala is going with some other Bengali leaders to Delhi. So you better go and meet them. So when I went to meet this, went to meet the Bengali leaders who were there, who were assembled at one point, uh, the senior most person there was a district president of the Awami League from Chittagong, Mr. Mr. Siddiqui. And uh, he was being taken to Delhi because even the chief minister felt helpless and said that unless we get direction from Delhi as to how to deal with this, we don't know what is happening. So I went, I asked Siddiqui, do you know anyone in Delhi? He said, well, I've never been to Delhi in my life and I know nobody in India. 
so then I said, well, let me write you a letter of introduction to uh, two economists uh, who are in important positions in Delhi, Dr. Ashok Mitra and Dr. P. N. Dhar. So he said, forget the letter. Why don't you just come along with me? And so here was I, sort of wearing borrowed pajamas and kurtas, getting my first shave in three days, uh, setting out with the chief minister of Agartala and landing in Delhi. And of course, the first thing I did... Took a flight. You flew. Yeah, he flew. We flew with him on a commercial flight. Uh, and then uh, in Delhi, uh, the first thing I did was to phone up Amartya Sen, who was a professor of economics at uh, Delhi University, who came and took me and Adi The Nobel laureate. No, the Nobel laureate. I think uh, no one needs to be told his name. And he took us to his home. And then the next morning, he phoned up uh, Dr. Ashok Mitra, who was then uh, economic advisor to uh, the government of India. And that was basically my entree to the government of India through Avarto Sen and to Ashok Mitra. Now, Ashok Mitra then introduced me to P.N. Dhar, who was we'd met professionally, but uh, he was then uh, economic advisor to Indira Gandhi in a secretariat, and he took me again to meet uh, P.N. Haksar, who was then the principal secretary to Indira Gandhi, and reportedly the most second most powerful person in the regime. And basically, when I began my conversation with him, what really amazed me was how little he actually knew about the details of the events which were actually going on in Dhaka. And so the very first briefing on actually what had happened in the preceding weeks and the final launch of the genocide given to the government of India was given by me and Anisur Rahman to the principal secretary. Now, it struck me that we were told that the Indians were engaged in a great conspiracy to break up Pakistan. So how the hell did they not really know what the hell was going on over here? And uh, further evidence of this essentially was that a day after us, uh, Tajuddin Ahmed, who had a legitimate credential to speak for Bangladesh, uh, as the second most important person in the Awami League. When he arrived in Delhi, uh, he was then set up to go and meet Mrs. Gandhi. But he didn't know who the hell is this Tajuddin Ahmad. Uh, wow. they, everyone knew Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, but no one had heard of Tajuddin Ahmad. So I had to give Haksar a sort of detailed political biography. That's very interesting. Tajuddin Ahmad. Pakistani narrative, Tajuddin Ahmad is this old, hardened Indian agent or something. Not, no, no, no. The, he was referred to in the Pakistani press as Major Shomir Das, actually a Hindu in disguise who was masquerading as Tajuddin Ahmad. Uh, uh, there to sort of subvert the Pakistan state. But anyway, what amazed me then was how little they knew Total about fabrication, it. you mean? Yeah, and then uh, actually the best part of the joke was that Tajuddin had arrived and he was kept in uh, another place. And I didn't know this, and the next morning I was then asked to come along and go and meet someone. And I went and met came and came across Tajuddin Ahmad and Barrister Amirul Islam, who was accompanying him. And what I realized was 
that the reason why I was being taken there was that I was being taken to identify that this person who claims to be Tajuddin Ahmad is actually Tajuddin Ahmad. Uh, because I had recognition, thanks to Amartya Sen and Ashok Mitra, uh, and I was the only person who had a known identity as far as the Indian Dhar, state yeah. was concerned. But beyond the epic giant figure of Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, everyone else of any consequence in the political landscape of Bangladesh was unknown to the Indians. So, an initial part in the period that we were in Delhi, before I took off on my foreign travels, was to tell people what the hell was going on in Bangladesh, to speak to intellectuals, to speak to media, uh, and to tell them, A, what was happening, B, they couldn't even believe that the Bengalis wanted a separate state. They thought that the Pakistanis were committing a few excesses, and maybe things would be put right. The notion that we were in a life and death liberation struggle had to be inculcated into their consciousness, both by the passage of events on the ground and uh, campaign over there. So the whole narrative of the grand Indian conspiracy was really, as far as I was concerned, a figment of the imagination. But they believe that uh, when Sheikh Mujibur Rahman was charge-sheeted uh, for treason, one of the items in his charge sheet was that Nurul Islam and myself uh, were, in fact, using the services of his brother-in-law, who was a director of telecommunications in East Pakistan, to set up telecommunication links telecommunications with India. And so, if that was fortunately, the... fortunately, both of us got out, but his yeah. brother-in-law was in fact actually arrested and he was in fact uh, uh, interrogated and another brother-in-law was taken to Lahore and was interrogated under torture uh, because they were visiting our house when uh, we were engaged in running an alternate government and they were just coming as casual visitors. Wow. Well, we've had a good discussion on, uh, uh, on the liberation struggle in which you played a role and there's a lot more about all of that in the book, which is available for sale right behind here when you go out, so you can all buy it. And I'm sure that Dr. Rahman Subhan will be uh, pleased to sign the book for you if you want it uh, signed. My last question before I turn it to the audience. Do you think Bangladesh has lived up to its potential, a country born with such hard struggle, blood and uh, sweat of its own people, uh, great international sympathy and support? Uh, people who still, by the way, every every person who supported the cause of Bangladesh anywhere in the world that I have ever met, I've been to many places, Australia, Europe, here, uh, they always show up when Bangladesh is mentioned. It's something that has lived with them. People who participated in the Bangladesh concert, uh, you know, the famous concert that was held to raise money for by people of Bangladesh, they still have this affinity with Bangladesh. So, so, so such great international support, such great mobilization of its own people. Where do you think Bangladesh stands today? What are the positive accomplishments of Bangladesh as a state? What are areas where you think the country needs to focus more and make changes? <clears throat> well, of course, putting on my hat as an economist, or at least a defunct economist, uh, I would essentially say that 
looking at the post-colonial world, few countries live up to their promise and expectations. Uh, of course, now the world has changed and Asia has become the new growth center of the economic universe uh, with China and India at its center. But the narrative has always been a very mixed progression. In the case of Bangladesh, uh, of course, Kissinger gave us our baptism by terming us as a basket case and then the aside that, well, they, are, they will be a basket case, but fortunately not ours. Uh, but I think the narrative has been that actually we did not end up as a basket case. Because actually, uh, today, aid dependence in Bangladesh, which at the time of liberation would be in the range of about 12% of GDP, is now down to about 1%. Uh, uh, we were producing 10 million tons of food grains in 1971. We are producing 40 million tons of food grain. And after 40 million tons, and are for all practical purposes, though not in the workings of a market system, uh, self-sufficient in food. But that doesn't mean that everyone is adequately fed, because this is a problem of distribution and, uh, and uh, uh, economic policy. And uh, human development indicators are in many ways better than India's today. Uh, we are, I suppose, doing moderately well in terms of economic growth. Uh, we are the second largest garment exporters in the world. Uh, we have created now a fairly dynamic uh, entrepreneurial class who, of course, unfortunately do not always repay their debts, so they create a banking crisis. But they have been very efficient entrepreneurs. Uh, and uh, there is a huge promise uh, that was in many ways not entirely expected uh, given our inheritance because we were really a backwater of South Asia uh, and uh, we had many years of neglect to overcome. So at the economic level, I think as with every case, there is a great scope for doing much better. Our uh, distributive choices are uh, in need of great improvement. We have become a more unequal society, as have been the case of most developing countries, including China. But I suppose looking at some of the objective indicators, we have done reasonably well. Politically, we've had a mixed trajectory. And uh, the democratic narrative has been an interrupted narrative with uh, phases of undemocracy and uh, phases where democracy has generally led a fairly perilous future, fate. But the bottom line essentially is that you have created new social forces in the country. And one of the great forces in the country are our women, who in fact have come out of the home, come out of their villages, they have constituted... Much larger number of women in the workforce in, in a proportionate terms... In Pakistan, certainly. Pakistan. And I think both through the microcredit revolution, where you have, um, I suppose, close to about uh, 40 million uh, households getting access to microcredit, you have uh, 
large numbers of women who are the majority of the workforce in the garment sector. But the social implications of this have been much more significant, that they have really demonstrated that they are part of the working economy and that they are not going to be sent back home through any ideological uh, messages which may come from uh, more sort of fundamentalist constituencies. So these are the objective realities that there is virtually no household in Bangladesh now where a woman may not be contributing to the earnings of that household in virtually every village. And so even the menfolk, however patriarchal they might be, recognize now that their wife is no longer a helpless dependent, but is their partner. And this is, I think, an important factor, but we are a long way to go. We are still socially, we have many problems. Women, even in the workplace, don't have a very comfortable time. And uh, we have forces at work which would certainly like to reverse this process. Well, I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions from the audience along these lines, especially on contemporary matters, you know, the killing of bloggers, uh, the sort of occasional ter uh, terrorist uh, uh, emergence of terrorists uh, acting in the name of religion, the executions of uh, uh, people involved in, uh, 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 allegedly involved in uh, the uh, genocide in 1971, etc. So I'll, I'll, I'll not ask those questions. Thank you for a wonderful discussion. We are open for questions. Uh, first question that... Young man in the white shirt right there. Thank you. Introduce yourself quickly and ask the question in the microphone. Thank you so much, Dr. Shaban. Thank you so much, Ambassador Haqqani, for the excellent discussion. My name is Rafayat Haq, and I'm affiliated with the media industry in Bangladesh. Before posing my question, uh, Dr. Shaban, I'd like to say something to you. Uh, with all due respect, I think the entrepreneurial class are not being able to pay back their loans in Bangladesh is because the government has not enabled a conducive business environment. Uh, and now I'll uh, pose my question. Um, so, Dr. Shaban, in your opinion, what do you think is the reason for why the Awamili government is reluctant to admit that there are elements of ISIS and Al-Qaeda operating within Bangladesh? Thank you. Well, to be <coughs> on the first issue which you raised about the conducive climate, uh, in fact, I've had the misfortune to actually research the debt crisis in Bangladesh and Misfortune uh, or good fortune? Oh, well, it depends on... Finally, the truth is always a good thing. That which way you look at it. I, I have even written a book uh, on the, uh, de the crisis of debt default in Bangladesh. And I can assure you that uh, whilst the uh, opportunities could certainly be improved, I think the issue of debt default has in fact become part of the business model of many businessmen who find that actually uh, it is sensible business practice to default on your loan and then in fact eventually get it rescheduled because it changes the whole cost of capital if you in fact go down that road. And this is a crisis which has persisted for 30 years over three or four successive regimes. But I won't hold up the discussion because of that. On the second one, well, of course, uh, uh, this is the reality. You have got uh, a fundamentalist element there. Uh, it is a minority constituency. Any elections which they contest, they will be comprehensively defeated. Uh, 
Uh, but you now live in a world in which uh, the instrument of violence uh, by minority constituencies has, of course, become part of the sort of new politics that we have to deal with. Next question. It doesn't mean that this is a demonstration of the way the country is moving or looking, but uh, that these forces are there, that you are having to deal with it is a reality. For the next question, I'm going to be partial to any uh, woman in the audience who raises her hand. So if you have a question, women in the audience, be prepared for the next round. Uh, right now, this question here. Right. I'll come to all of you. Thank you. I'm Jay Kansar. I'm with the Hindu American Foundation. Uh, we're an advocacy organization. We actually have worked with Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard in the House to introduce a resolution that recognizes the contributions of, of the freedom fighters of Bangladesh and to uh, recognize the war crimes as the as the resolution calls it. It doesn't call it a genocide, but uh, that's a political discussion for later. My question is that a few weeks ago or, or two months ago, the Supreme Court was prepared to hear an argument of Bangladesh, was prepared to hear an argument to uh, remove Islam as a, as a religion of preference uh, in the Constitution in order to ensure the protection of bloggers and minorities such as Hindus, Christians, and Buddhists and others. and they they did not, and there's rumor that the government uh, actually in itself w did not want that trial to go on because if they did rule that to remove Islam, there would be riots. Do you feel that this is one of the reasons why extremism is so high in Bangladesh right now is because Islam is the religion of preference and, others, and other religious minorities are therefore second-class citizens? Well, you see, the original constitution of Bangladesh enshrined secularism. Dr. Kamal Hussein was one of the framers of that constitution and the four principles of state, it was one of them. Subsequent military regimes introduced uh, the sort of Islamic component into it, not because they were great Islamists. One of the legacies which we inherited from Pakistan was the willingness of military regimes to, in fact, use the chapeau of Islam to, in fact, gain an element of legitimacy uh, in uh, covering up their sort of anti-democratic interventions. Uh, this was a well-known practice of Ayub Khan. I've this written was a whole a, book on it. You've written a book about it, so I don't have to tell you this. And so Mr. Yahya Khan would have no problem in uh, massacring large numbers of fellow Muslims and then getting intoxicated in the same evening. Uh, so that particular problem has, of course, persisted. And when, in fact, uh, this was put in over there, the idea was that it was done for entirely instrumental reasons, that you will mobilize some element of a Muslim constituency uh, to back you in the name of Islam. But it did not reflect a fundamental transformation in the behavior of the state at that time. So at this particular moment, when uh, the Constitution was being uh, reviewed over here, this was left on by the present prime minister, not that she is not a firm believer in <coughs> a secular state, and in fact actually has been addressing problems which are in fact challenging the secular traditions of the country. 
But I think she also, as I said, all politicians tend to be quite pragmatic. And her view was that, well, if uh, you have put this on, why remove it uh, and open up another front? Uh, I think I would certainly have been happy to see uh, many others who were challenging it, who were wanting it removed. But the fact that you so defined it uh, predetermines how, in fact, minorities would be treated, I don't think is really the objective. The fact that the minorities are not getting as fair a treatment as possible don't originate in that, con in that uh, particular uh, feature of the Constitution. It has its origins in other factors, which, of course, we can have a big discussion on that subject. Uh, okay. Uh, yes. Uh, two, three questions together. Shall we take them together so that, uh, you know, we save time because we'll be running out of time soon? Yes, the young lady here. Hi, my question is, what is your Introduce opinion? yourself. Uh, Warren Thompson, Cassie Associates. My question is, what is your opinion on the International Crimes Tribunal, particularly given the fairly widespread international criticism of it as politically motivated and not up to uh, international standards? Okay. Another question right here. Yes, right in the middle. Um, I want to go off the um, Bangladesh has come a long way from 1971 economically. Um, it's a middle power. It's part of the um, the eleven econ the next eleven economies, but it's not. Um, t I think terrorism is still a serious issue. Um, what has the Bangladeshi government done so far to combat that, and what can they do to improve? Introduction. Uh, um, I'm 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 Vincent. I'm an offsite intern at Hudson. Okay, thanks. Good. And then one more question. Yes, sir. Yeah. Do you mind taking the microphone, Doctor? I'm Dr. Shahid Rob, and I happened to be in the audience when Indira Gandhi was here at the National Cathedral in November 1971. And I remember a very heartfelt lament from her that had the Bengalis contacted us at the beginning, we could have prevented at least some of the bloodshed. Okay, good. So we have two questions and a comment. That uh, the comment is doesn't merit, I think, uh, and that just yeah. adds to our information. It, it confirms what I said, right? The International uh, uh, War uh, Crimes Tribunal, uh, and the other question is uh, about terrorism again. Well, you see, there are two parts of that story. One is that the people who were being tried were being tried. There was really no debate or controversy over the fact that the relevant people and parties were, in fact, associated with the army and were, in fact, uh, speaking up for it and were, in fact, supporting it, and that elements from that constituency, in fact, actually picked up university teachers and, in fact, actually massacred them, took soldiers from the army to villages, and in fact singled out people and had them killed. So those were the objective facts of that time, and I don't think there is any great uh, debate about those issues. Now, as far as the due process is concerned, there were lengthy legal proceedings 
which went on, uh, how far these legal proceedings conform to international standards or other standards that you may apply over here or how far those standards are relevant. These are all issues which should be asked to constitutional lawyers. I'm not really in a position to uh, get into this particular conversation. What I do know is that these proceedings went on over quite a long period of time. Huge amounts of evidence were collected, whether these the evidence and the proceedings conformed to your notions of uh, international uh, legality. As I said, I would be happy uh, if I was better informed of the law and what is due process to, in fact, comment on that. But what I think I would certainly like to reaffirm as, again, because I was both witness to and I had many of my colleagues uh, actually murdered in Dhaka University by some of these very people who were, in that sense, at least their people from their party who were, in fact, then on trial, is that this was one of the objective facts of that time, that there was a genocide. It was abetted by people who were, in fact, actually brought to trial. And, of course, terrorism, I think you've already spoken about. So, you know, I'll assume that that is a question that has already been addressed. A couple of more quick questions. Yes, of course. I'm just going to make a comment also because when my husband and I spent our first two years of marriage in India. Tom came back and was working on Capitol Hill. This is Joan Dine. Wait, yes, of alert, course. sorry, Joan Dine. And my husband came home one day and said, I think a genocide has just started in Bangladesh and I've got to do something to stop it. And the next day, I think, he brought in Raymond Sobhan and two just absolutely brilliant members of Sheikh Mujibur Rahman's brain trust. And we were just so blown away by the caliber of the human beings that were speaking on this issue and obviously so outraged that um, we gave them as, as much help as we could. And the techniques of trying to reach people in power and and force them to do the right thing all um, by reaching out to the press and reaching to friends of, of congressmen and um, editors and the press. Those techniques, I think, were on behalf of the Bangladesh outrage were put to use later by my husband in, in the pro-Israel lobby efforts that he then went on to in his career. So my question is that how did you do, how do you do it? Because I truly think this um, memoir is, it is brilliant. It's a beautiful read. It's, it's fascinating, as my husband said, on the, the politics between the two parts of Pakistan. And it's absolutely accurate here as well. So thank you. Thank you. Um, I wish to point out over here that uh, one of Joan's contributions was to bring 
into the liberation movement, her one-year-old daughter, who joined her in a pram to picket uh, the Sheraton Hotel, where the World Bank IMF meeting was being held uh, uh, for the Pakistan consort, for, for, in fact, the meeting. So they were picketing the bank and fund to stop aid to Pakistan, and her one-year-old daughter, Amy, was, in fact, uh, one of the picketers. Probably the youngest freedom fighter. Uh, yes. Uh, Tom Timberg, consultant. Among the other, if you will, accomplishments, among the other accomplishments uh, of Bangladesh have been the creation of institutions such as the Center for Public uh, CPD and earlier uh, BIDS. And it seems to me that that has been one of the positive reasons, and also Grameen Bank, if you will, NGO, that Bangladesh has been able to accomplish what it has. But I wondered if you'd, you'd, you'd speak to that, because it seems to me that that is an accomplishment, a, a major accomplishment, and one which you certainly have been actively engaged with several parts of. Well, one of the founding fathers of the BIDS uh, which had its origins in the Pakistan Institute of Development Economics was Professor Noodle Islam, who is here. Uh, and he was instrumental in recovering the only asset which Pakistan uh, ceded to Bangladesh uh, at the time of the uh, division of the country because he managed to get BI the PIDE institution transferred to Dhaka on the eve of the liberation struggle. So we recognize that as our only asset we gained from a united Pakistan. Uh, they have not given us the share of any other assets. I would argue part of your army, you know, because all those people who ended up, uh, the, the, the coup makers were all people who were trained in Kakul. Achha, that, so, yeah, so, they were also, of course, very active in the liberation war. Yeah, they were. Uh, so they were also, I suppose you trained them well in some directions. Uh, and, I, have, uh, I have nothing to do with their training, I assure you. Okay. Uh... Oh, no. So I think uh, Tom's, uh, uh, Mr. Krimberg's uh, proposition then was that, yes, we have created some well-known institutions. And of course, Grameen Bank and BRAC and a number of others are now globally recognized entities. Uh, so these have been uh, part of the alternate narrative of the development story. Good. Thank you. Yep. John, can you hear me? Yeah. Thank you very much, Ambassador Hakani and Professor Suhan. I am a daughter of the soil and I've been part of the liberation war and yet this hour has been a learning process for me, which is saying quite a lot. Um, I just have one question about the new act which is proposed, the Liberation War Distortion Crimes Act. I mean, obviously a book like yours is so important for the future generation. Do you think this act is going to affect the rewriting or the writing of the history of Bangladesh and how will it affect people like you? Will your style be cramped? Do you think people will write books about the uh, 
uh, Bangladesh Liberation War if this act is at all passed? <laughs> I, would, I would add to it uh, that the, is there need for such an act? Why not let people just, you know, why should there be just one narrative and one account? Why can't people give alternative accounts? The event has happened. It's a historic event. There are records everywhere and there are individuals who are still alive who've gone through it. Why try to legislate uh, history? Well, uh, this question is being also asked and debated within Bangladesh. So this is an ongoing debate. I have not seen the small print of the legislation, but no doubt uh, I too would like to join the debate. After all, I would hate to think that my memoir would end up on the wrong side of the uh, legal process as a consequence of this. Because the notion that there can be some codified uh, historical narrative is, of course, goes in the face of all history. And so history is an ongoing and dynamic process. I think we are certainly bothered by the fact that uh, serious untruths are narrated about the liberation war, but they have to basically be matched by the presentation of the facts and alternate uh, information backed by evidence. The notion that you can legislate and sort of legally enforce a particular version of history is my, in, in my experience, it's really not going to be a very successful venture. Last two questions, the gentleman there, the lady, in fact, three, the lady there and the young woman here. So all three of them, let's have the questions and then we'll get them answered in one go. My first question is actually, I mean, I always wonder, what was the idea behind Pakistan in terms of what this country is going to be like and how it's going to, how it's going to end up as? In other words, if you look at Indian National Congress documents, they had an idea of a liberal democracy after the independence. I've never got a sense of what Pakistan was going to be. Maybe you can comment. You've been sp you've been spared that debate now that you're a Bangladeshi, so therefore that that you know let us leave that for other historians. That's fine. But, the reason know. I ask that question is that there is a culture of intolerance in our society, of pluralities of ideas, of debate, of, of what we call Western liberal democracy. What is the source of it? Would you comment on that, please? Okay. Well, uh, as a quick response to question one. You should read Mr. Haqqani's uh, classical work, Between the Mosque and the Military, uh, which is a very good and educational read. Uh, on the second question, I think the answer to that up to a point lies in the very confrontational nature of our democratic journey. That essentially you have created a highly confrontational political framework in which uh, the major political narratives have become virtually tribalized. And this has led, as I said, to a culture of intolerance and a winner-take-all uh, process, uh, which has uh, moved over successive regimes. And unless this is satisfactorily resolved, I think you are going to continue to have a fairly rocky democratic journey. Final two questions, right in the middle. 
Hi, um, I'm Monica Jahanbos. I'm a Bangladeshi American um, feminist lawyer and artist. Um, I was so curious. I mean, I know you personally, and, but I was so interested to to understand the deep role that um, economists played in the liberation of Bangladesh and the advocacy um, for that process. I really didn't know the depth of it. And is this is this a South Asian uh, uh, issue, or is it is it is it just a, a fluke? Of history, I don't know. I haven't seen this in any other. I don't. We, we don't have that here in this country, for example. Economists playing that kind of a role. So I'm curious. Thank you, Monica. Well, Monica's father, uh, Swadesh Bose, was one of my dear friends and colleagues. Now, no more. Who was associated with us in the liberation struggle and was one of the economists who participated in the uh, narrative. Of course, the definitive work on the role of economists and economics in the liberation war originates in the writings of Professor Noodle Islam. I've been a person who contributed to that narrative, so his books should certainly be read on that, and I'm sure you must have had an opportunity to uh, read it. But I think uh, centrally what always was part of the Pakistan story was the way in which the democratic crisis or the denial of democracy culminated in the denial of economic resources and economic opportunities for the Bengalis. And that part of the story was really told by the economists. So we came to occupy a larger-than-life role uh, through various parts of the historical journey. <coughs> One of the interesting features of this was, in a way, the period under martial law gave economists and academic economists greater visibility. The reason for that essentially was that for at least the initial phase of martial law, before the uh, soldiers shed their uniforms and became civilian political leaders, uh, the politicians were simply embargoed from speaking. So the only people who were actually speaking out uh, for several years were the Bengali economists who were taking the government to task uh, on what we thought was an economic subject. So if they wanted to lock us up uh, on grounds of committing political subversion against the military regime, it was a hard slog. And until you actually told them that the country may break up if you don't do something about it, it was difficult for them. So the politicians then embraced the economists. I remember when my article came out, uh, my, the speech which I told you about in Lahore, it was published in uh, the Bangladesh, in the Pakistan Observer, the Dhaka's English Daily, uh, with headlines over two successive days, an academic paper, and suddenly uh, a young economist who not too many people had heard of got visibility, which I had no right to get. And politicians were seeking us out and wanting to be briefed as if they were members of parliament or wanting us to prepare speeches for them. And we were very much in the limelight. So the nature of the crisis was very central uh, to the economic issues of that time. And the economists, perhaps more than the uh, other disciplines were actually more instrumental in projecting this. Of course, then uh, Professor Ronak Jahan is uh, the uh, author 
built around her Harvard PhD thesis, uh, produced this classical work, Failure of National Integration, which was a definitive political account of the breakup of Pakistan. Uh, and it was actually written by her when she was completing her PhD, and it came out, uh, the PhD, in fact, was published uh, on the eve of the Liberation War. But beyond Ronak's work, I think political scientists were not very uh, visible, even though the subject was a political issue. But economists were the ones who were vocal. And I was, in fact, given the ultimate compliment by a Pakistani economist when we were having one of our heated debates that Rahman Subhan doesn't even practice political economy. He is a politician economist. Well, uh, and, and, and what greater Asia, compliment could you get? Yeah. In South Asia, the, 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 uh, the discipline of political science as an academic discipline has had much less influence, even lesser influence on practical politics than it does in the United States these days. Uh, and, and the economists were people who were actually putting out facts that then the politicians who already had a visceral feeling of injustice could actually use to build up their case. And that kind of created a, 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 a symbiotic relationship between Bangladeshi economists and Bangladeshi politicians, which played a significant role in the liberation struggle. Last question, since I already promised that I will let Hello. you ask the question. Hello, I'm Ifat Nawaz. I'm a writer and a proud niece of two freedom fighters who gave their life during the freedom of our liberation war. My question is, I've uh, been researching a lot on 1952, the language movement recently came upon movies and books, and I've been watching how the youth of Bangladesh had really glorified that pain and kept it alive and then pushed towards it every year since 1952 leading up to 71, feeling the fire. Last six years I was in Bangladesh and we had uh, journalist killings, we had Abhijit Roy dying, we had many other things happen in between. But um, the youth, we think of it in, a, in, in, in some ways, we do some Facebook post and then we forget about it a month later. What do you think is the missing link between the generation that our fathers lived and us? And is it easier when we have an us and them factor as opposed to an us and us? I just wanna hear your uh, advice perhaps for our generation. Thank you. Well, it's a good question. Uh, I've, uh, I think, what we find over here is that the contemporary youth, as with contemporary youth anywhere, covers a really wide spectrum. <coughs> and at least in our generation, while we like to think that there was a strong level of political consciousness amongst young people, and the students in particular, played a very active role in the democratic and then the liberation struggle. Uh, to think that this was a sort of universal characterization of the youth of uh, the then East Pakistan would be quite incorrect because many segments of it really kept out of things, kept out of trouble, uh, whilst there were economists who were active from Bangladesh. There were many who preferred not to be and in fact were happy to in fact actually uh, sing the songs of the regime in power at that time. Uh, and uh, this essentially means that you have always a mixed story. And to define the conversation intergenerationally becomes more problematic. I would think that 
in within the contemporary generation, what I find is that there has been a significant deterioration, certainly in the quality of student politics. And student politics has become much more parochialized and instrumentalized in which uh, many people's ideological mirrorings, particularly from the mainstream parties, has been uh, much weaker. Uh, they have used these positions, the, the movement for more instrumental and material reasons. And there is a much greater element of sort of violence and criminality which has entered into their form of activism. But having made that point, they will, there are still many uh, idealistic young people. They come out at particular mo historical moments as they did in the Shahbagh process. Uh, as they have done at other periods of time. But generally, I would say that the idea is that it is easier to get on in life and to, in fact, actually uh, look for your own sort of personal advancement, which is, I presume, the case in most parts of the world, that you have a small idealistic group who want to perform public service, who want to do uh, socially important things, but a uh, fairly large number of people, and obviously the more the country matures, the much larger constituency you have who are simply getting on with life and want to distance themselves from the unpleasant world of politics and activism. Large numbers of people, uh, young people with no cause, uh, which is where you started actually, uh, and came to have a cause, which is very important, which is why you should commend the book to your young Bangladeshi friends. Thank you very much, Dr. Rahman Subhan, for this wonderful morning, and thank you all for coming here.